welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. What did you want to talk about today? I was thinking we could talk about lipids today. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Does that does that sound like uh, does that sound uh, like a fairly uh, like a fairly uh, significant? Uh, we could we could give that a we could give that a rock. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Especially because uh, I got to pull up the reference for it. The new I can't remember which uh, month the CFP article by yeah. by Mike Allen. Mike Allen, the greatest person alive. I don't know how he's so prolific. Eh? Do you li- uh, do you listen to his podcast, The Best Science Medicine? I do, I do. It's fantastic. But they do that every week. Plus, he publishes just prolifically. I don't know where he finds. The I time. know. I... No, he's a he's a he's a phenomenal uh, he's a phenomenal uh, you know a phenomenal purpose person and stuff. So it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing oh, what he's able to uh, what he's able to um, to do and stuff. So it's 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 pretty cool exactly. for sure. Well, I try and come up with uh, study notes to accompany all these, eh? And then I realized after going through his <laughs> his article in the CFP, it covers yes. everything. It does, it does, and it provides a nice little like it provides a nice little. Um, um, summary of everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's good. You know, he has a very good way of, um, he has a very, very good way of, of kind of getting the main salient points. You know what I mean? And stuff. Right. So, like the stuff um, we um, care about getting... rather than if you look at the ACC or the um, CCS or yeah, something CCS like that. CCS guidelines, yeah. they go, they, you know, they're cardiologist guidelines. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. So um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty good. But how's life? How's the weather in, uh, in LaRange right now? Uh, oh, it's way warmer than what it was in Laloche, not Larange. <laughs> Larange, okay, Laloche. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I I I messed up on my. It seems bright and sunny outside. Yeah, well, it's minus twelve today, so that's practically that's summer good. weather. Practically summer. Yeah. It's, it's similar in Sioux Lookout right now. It's like it's not too bad at all. Nice. It's uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty good. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's good. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, I, you know what? I love this time of year too. It's like when it's not anything above minus 20 is just fantastic. Right? Oh, absolutely. Cause you can still go outside. You can still do that. You can kind of work up a bit of a sweat and stuff and not have to worry about it, you know, but like, if it just gets to like minus 20, it just doesn't get fun. Yeah. Like, I don't care what anybody has to say. It's not fun. Exactly. Like there's impossible to have fun when it's like minus 60. Yeah. It's just impossible. Oh you yeah. Know what I mean? sure. So perfect. So we're gonna rock this lipidemia's world today. Oh heck yeah! Heck we're gonna yeah. we're just it's gonna be a total dyslipidemic blast. Absolutely. We did diabetes, dyslipidemia, probably hypertension's coming up soon. Yeah, those are all the all the all the big exam topics. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, no. It's 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 true. And you know these things are based on our our cardiovascular risk factors, right? And cardiovascular disease is a huge cause of people dying absolutely and it's a huge huge cause of mortality and stuff so these things you know warrant you know warrant some attention and stuff you know and with so many other topics like things like stroke and 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 mis and coronary artery disease like these things are 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 risk factors for those particular processes right so it's very important that we spend some time to kind of to kind of look at some of these concepts or so yeah exactly perfect i think that's kind of a good point to even start off there is we're not reducing lipids for the sake of reducing lipids. That's not the exactly. point. Exactly. We're doing it because it's a major risk factor for all these other diseases. Hyper, exactly. Hyperlipidemia exactly. isn't much of a disease by itself. I mean, lots of people exactly. have crazy high lipids and do just fine, but it's the sequelae. 
Exactly, exactly. And it, it kind of breaks the argument too when we consider what outcome we, we, we are looking at, right? Like I'm not looking per se at the lowering of the LDL. I'm considering per se the reduction in badness potential that that doing certain interventions um, um, do, right? So, and exactly like what you said, right? It's not so much the dyslipidemia itself, but it's more all the badness that dyslipidemia has been associated with, right? And that, and, and, and can, and can by reducing it or treating it, can it reduce the chance of all, all that badness, right? Exactly. Kind of like when we're talking about diabetes, like A1C, right? There's A1C. That's one thing, and that's great. But what do I really care about is, like, does this actually reduce your chance of microvascular or microvascular disease, right? So Yeah, exactly. I mean, people with a crazy high Perfect. A1C are, can still be asymptomatic. People with crazy high lipids can be asymptomatic. It doesn't bother them. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't bother. Perfect. Perfect. We care about these things because they're associated with other badness, other significant badness. So I'm with the integrator, the integrator himself, Dr. Bouchard. <laughs> In the wonderful minus 12 weather, we're in both places almost across the country in minus 12 degree weather, we're going to talk about dyslipidemia. So is it common, Dr. Bouchard? Is this something that's fairly common? Oh, hell yeah. Exactly. Oh, hell yeah. I love the old hell yeah. So you're getting the street version. I love it. Hell yeah. The hell yeah version of it is common, right? Now, next question, common enough to warrant screening, Dr. Bouchard? Absolutely. Perfect. Excellent, excellent. And we're really talking today, you know, we mentioned it uh, a little bit earlier and stuff. Um, Canadian Cardiovascular Society guideline, fairly good, right? Yep. Um, uh, um, that kind of sort of gets the national standard. Um, in the CFPC a few months ago, excellent sort of review article that it's kind of like that bigger article, a much light version. And I, I like, I love it too. Um, Mike Allen was the, uh, was the principal author, uh, um, um, author on it and stuff. And I think it really provides a really, really good framework for dyslipidemia. Yeah, absolutely. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines are 2012 and have been updated a little bit since then. And then the, exactly. the ACC guidelines in the States came out in... Are 2014 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and differed in some some fairly major points. And I think that's why Mike Allen's review article was really good because he addressed kind of those points Perfect. and why they were different. Perfect. And, you know, I don't even, you know, just to kind of briefly talk about what they do down under, and I don't mean Australia, I mean down under in Portland, Maine. Does, oh, Portland, Maine. Portland, what am Maine? I talking what? about? Exactly. Where's Portland? <laughs> yeah. Tell me. It's somewhere, right? Well, there's a Portland, Maine, but I don't know if they developed the guidelines there. And there you go. I don't know. I don't know if it's down, down, fine. You know what I mean by down under? Okay. <laughs> yeah. so quit being, you know, specific. You're an engineer. Take off the engineering hat and put on the medicine hat, okay? Sounds good. Perfect. <laughs> so anyway, so down, down under in the United States, um, they've updated their guidelines um, a little bit later than ours, and they have a vast, actually a pretty significant approach, right? Like they kind of have these sort of treat and forget about it, exactly. right? You know what I mean? And 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 uh, based on certain risk factors, right? Um, um, whereas in Canada, we haven't really officially adopted that official policy yet. You yeah. know what I mean? It might be down the pipes, but just so that people know that you know you don't write your exam and you're spewing off stuff um, 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 that's relevant in Texas. You know what I mean? And stuff. And it's not to say that what they're doing isn't relevant. Because I, I think for some of the higher risk people, they have the right idea. Where they where they kind of get criticism is is that the majority of people are lower risk, right? And you're slapping a whole lot of people on statins, right? So that's a bit of a that's a bit of a criticism or so, right? But we're just going to really focus on the Canadian stuff. So it's really common common enough to warrant screening. Who are we going to screen, Doctor Bouchard? So there's again just like with the diabetes thing, there's two ways to kind of approach this. You can do it based on 
kind of a preponderance of risk factors. So if they have hypertension, if they have a strong family history of cardiovascular disease, if they're diabetic, Perfect. if they're smokers, probably screen them super early. Um, in everybody else, or if you just want to have a number in your head, men greater than 40 years and women over 50. Yeah, exactly, right? Definitely screen them uh, Definitely screen them super early and stuff, right? Yeah. So where they talk about in terms of your kind of your average risk people, they mentioned about males greater than 40, females greater than 50. Does that make sense? Yep. Consider um, if you are, you know, there's, there's certain ethnicities that cardiovascular diseases may be potentially associated with higher risk of screen, potentially discuss with your patients about screening them at earlier um, um, ages, but you're really considering it based on risk factors, right? So if you have risk factors for atherosclerosis, you want to screen for people, right? And this is well documented in guidelines. I find the one that people tend to forget about, and I'm going to highlight because we all know about kidney disease, and we all know about obesity, that you're going to want to screen for that, and diabetes, and if you have hypertension, do you understand? Or if, you, if you're from a family with a high, uh, um, where people are dying at a young age of manifestations of atherosclerosis. I want to point out inflammatory disease. So if you have a patient with lupus, they need to be screened. Does that make sense? Good point. I want to point, if you have a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, they need to be screened. That's where that's where I find, I don't know if it's just me. I'm not as smart as Dr. Bouchard. I always forget about that, right? Like yeah. I always forget and I'm always like, oh, you know, or I have a patient with rheumatoid arthritis and I'm like, oh, okay, I have to remember that dyslipidemia is, is an issue with that, right? The other one I want to point out HIV. Does that make sense? HIV is a risk factor. Does that make sense? And you want to make sure that you can you can consider that. In addition to being on treatment for HIV can cause secondary dyslipidemias, right? Because certain of the protease inhibitors are notorious for causing dyslipidemias and stuff. So you want to consider that and stuff. Pretty well, the other factors exactly you may have mentioned are stuff that you're not going to forget about. If you're smoking, if you're diabetic, if you come from a history of premature um, cardiovascular disease, so they define that as under 55 in males, under 65 in females, um, you, you have kidney issues, um, 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 those types of things people don't generally forget about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I find that um, 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 in inflammatory conditions as well as HIV, people tend to forget about those types of things. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. And Mike Allen doesn't even ad address the inflammatory stuff in his article. Um, yeah. Or have recommendations around it anyway. So Exactly. And oftentimes, too, people can be on medications that actually increase your chance of uh, of getting dyslipidemias or so, right? So you want to keep in mind. And oftentimes, you know, and, and so it's a, I feel it's important. Perfect. Yep. And one other category I'd throw in there is in the family history, the familial hypertriglyceridemias. Um, those are those are an ent entirely other category. Um, oh, they're yeah. They're managed yeah, early yeah. and aggressively, and they don't none of the, oh, yeah, none of the yeah. guidelines uh, really apply to them at all. Really talk about, and that's where you're going to get your fe your fellowship trained endocrinologist colleagues. You know. Involved yeah. Exactly. Stuff, you know, because because there's about 50 different genetic mutations of this and stuff. So it's you want to, and genetic testing can be important and stuff. But very very good point. Yeah. By the integrator. There you go. Captain Calculus, <laughs> Doctor Green. Sure. Nice. Perfect. So what are we going to do now? Okay, so you have a person, they they're, they're, you've decided to um, you decided to screen them based on their average risk and their age, or you know they have some risk factor. So what are you going to do? What what what's your screening test of choice going to be? Non-fasting lipids. Excellent. I I'm glad you put that in there with non-fasting. You know, if you want to piss people off, get them to fast, right? Does it, it universally pisses people off, yeah. right? And for years it was like, no, no, you have to fast. Like you have to you. It's like if it's like using your cell phone at a gas station. It may like totally, we may think you have something and treat you just totally accidentally for something totally bad. Exactly, right? and even though that's the standard of care now, man, it's still an uphill battle. We still, I, I still have to fight with our lab here. Our lab will not do oh, yeah. 
non-fasting lipids. You do not need to, exactly, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned that, right? You know, and they're getting away from that too because it's annoying you're fasting for eight hours. You know what I mean? And we have no good evidence to base it from. Yeah. And the big thing is, fasting really only affects your triglycerides. And guess what? Triglycerides aren't really even a target for anything. Exactly. Right? So it's, it's, it's kind of pointless, right? Yeah. So um, all of these things are, are usually at a steady state anyway. And the only one that it really affects is your triglyceride. And that's not really a target for anything that I'm using, yeah. right? So... Beautiful. Perfect. Excellent. Right? So we're going to do not fast. And what does that mean? That's your LDL. That's your HDL. Um, your triglycerides. They, they have this new thing called non-HDL, right? So it's a calculation. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, based on your profile. Um, um, you want to check their kidneys, see what's happening. You want to check their glucose. Because remember, dyslipidemia can travel with hypertension. It can travel with, with, uh, with uh, diabetes as well, right? So you want to consider that, right? No, that's a good point. Now, let me ask you this, Dr. Bouchard, because I know, have you ever done an APOB? Like, have you lost your ApoB virginity yet? No, we don't have it. I've never been in a lab. Oh, my God, Dr. Boucher. <laughs> you haven't lost your... No, no, I have to admit. I've never ordered it, right? And I've never found a lab. Like, our lab in Sulu, it's like ApoB. So we're going to talk about it, but I, I don't have any practical experience with it, yeah. right? Uh, from what I understand, this is more of a test that's used in bigger centers and stuff like that, too. It is in the guideline as one of your targets to consider. But again, from a practical aspect, a lot of people don't use it, right? Exactly. I, I haven't seen it in the Canadian context at all yet. I don't know. I don't know if it adds anything. If you read through the guidelines, you can use it as an alternative. Exactly. And it doesn't really add anything except yeah. a whole lot of cost. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Perfect. Stuff. We'll talk about it in, in that it's a secondary target. It's not even your primary target. It's something you can use. For, uh, but, but again, you know, I just haven't had any really much practical experience with it because I've never ordered it. Yeah. But we'll talk about it. Yep. Fair enough. Perfect. Excellent. So remember, you talked about using um, 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 risk stratification tools, right? And just like in diabetes, our risk stratification tools can help us um, decide on screening. They can also help us decide on your intervals or screening. Kind of similar idea with uh, with dyslipidemia. But we we'll use that plate. Where is Framingham? For, for, for Mark, where is it? Is it in Canada or in the States? Like, this is a question. I have no idea. Uh, I'm going to guess Massachusetts just because I feel like it. I actually don't know. That's a good question. And that's because you went to MIT, didn't you? <laughs> No, you, I... Brady Bouchard went to MIT. Oh, look at this. I swear I didn't cheat. It's in Massachusetts. Did you just Google it? Yeah, I did. It's, oh, my. it's in Massachusetts. Brady Bouchard, it's in Massachusetts. You are brilliant. Perfect. So in Framingham, Massachusetts, they came up with this wonderful risk stratification sc score. And they were basically, they did this big studies, I guess, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and to identify a lot of these cardiovascular risk factors that we know and love today. Right? And it's called your Framingham Risk Score. And we'll actually put up a copy of this in your show notes. I don't want to spend too much time. But um, 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 generally, what makes up the Framingham, Dr. Bouchard? Yeah, so there's the Framingham and there's the modified Framingham, too, in Canada. Um, they all use the same um, numbers. So it's age, gender, uh, your cholesterol measurements. Uh, so you can either find Framinghams that use a total in an HDL, or you can find ones that use an LDL, or ones that use a non uh non-ldl ones and then the risk factors so smoker diabetic and your systolic blood pressure and whether you're on treatment for blood pressure but the excellent the modified the one that we should be using in canada per the guidelines is called a modified framingham and you have to make sure you're using the right one um, Perfect. And, and the modification is that you're you do the framingham you come up with a, a percentage risk for 10-year cardiovascular events but then you double it if you have a family. Perfect. Family I'm glad history. you mentioned that. Yeah. So if you have a family history, so men over 50 or women over 60 um, with a cardiovascular event in your immediate family members, then you double your risk.
Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's what people forget to do is double it. If you have a risk of an early manifestation of atherosclerosis, you need to double your, 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 when you compute your score, you need to double that number, right? And people don't forget about, people often forget about that. So good. So in Framingham, Massachusetts, and if you, I wish you could all see me because I'm doing air quotes <laughs> for Dr. Bouchard yeah. in Framingham, Massachusetts, right? Um, you know, that is a risk stratification tool, right? So you can actually risk stratify um, um, people according to their risk of having an atherosclerotic manifestation. Does that make sense? In the next 10 years. But they use it as well too in the guidelines to say, well, if you're, if your risk is above 5%, you're going to be screening that person every year. If it's under 5%, then you could probably screen every three years or so, right? You don't probably need to screen every year or so. Yeah. And, and again, if you're reading through Mike, uh, Mike Allen's guidelines, uh, he even mentions, which was new to me, and I, I didn't have a chance to read through all the evidence, but he mentions repeat screening no more than every five years in everybody that's not on lipid-lowering therapy. So he's got a couple Perfect. He's got a couple different things in there that are different from what I even learned in residency. But, exactly. but just to mention the contrast, I think screening anywhere is between one and five years based on you know your your clinical suspicion is reasonable. Exactly, exactly, I agree. And I tend to be more of the the Mike Allen five-year group, yeah. you know what I mean, and stuff, because it's, it's, it's a, you know, the problem is with doctors, we think that if I, I can do some blood work and if I do some blood work and I'm going to find something and, and, you know, the problem is we find things that, you know, we end up with these new issues. Does that make sense? And they may not necessarily treating them is actually going to affect outcomes for that particular patient. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Well, you always got to remember every test has a sensitivity and a specificity. And if you test, anyone enough times you're going to come up with a positive and it'll probably be a false yeah. positive so perfect perfect that's very very true so we're doing a framingham we're rocking along with our framingham our modified framingham remember to adjusting things according to whether or not there's early uh, um, um um you had atherosclerotic manifestations so what do we do so we basically when you have decided to screen somebody and you're stratifying them what do you, and you're using your Framingham to stratify them. We talked about this a little bit. You're really stratifying them on according to their 10 year risk, their 10 year risk of badness happening. So they have a stroke, they have a cardiovascular event, um, um, they have peripheral vascular disease, they have some atherosclerotic manifestation. So you can stratify people into low, intermediate, or high risk yeah. based on your Framingham. Or a triple A. Triple A is the other one. Or triple A. Very good. I almost forgot that. Thank God you went to MIT. There you That's go. Canada, thank God, Brady Bouchard. <laughs> if we need to integrate yeah. something right now, if I need to get the volume of a cylinder right now, you'd oh be our man. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think so. There you go. There you go. Excellent. Excellent. So we have low, intermediate, or high risk. We're stratifying according um, um, to our Framingham. Yeah. And, and where the real challenge is, is really kind of what you do for the people at intermediate risk, right? So high risk people. Right, that are defined by usually they have clinical, like they have clinically atherosclerotic manifestations. They have a triple A. Um, uh, um, they have some chronic kidney disease. Um, 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 they they are diabetics and not being diabetic themselves. Right, there's criteria on that. Yeah. Right? So their diabetes and their older diabetics are greater than forty. Right, or they've had it for a longer period of time. Does that make sense? Over fifteen years. So just having diabetes and being twenty and having diabetes does not necessarily put you at high risk. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, um, those people are probably going to be on status. Does that make sense? Like those people should probably be on status because they had an atherosclerotic manifestation. Does that make sense? Or they have a lot of risk. So the, the high risk people are not usually your your diagnostic challenge. Hi, I had a heart attack last week. You should probably be on status. Does that make sense? Oh, Hi, I lost my leg because of peripheral vascular disease. I, you should probably be on status. 
right? Yeah. That's not usually the issue. Hi, my Framingham risk is 69%, right? <laughs> yes, you should probably be on a statin, right? That's not usually the diagnostic challenge, right? And it's not even usually oftentimes the low risk people, it's the intermediate risk people, right? So what do you do in that sort of intermediate risk, right? So high risk people, they're going to be on a statin. They're higher than 20%. They have atherosclerotic manifestations. They have high risk diabetes. So that is not just everybody with diabetes, but there's certain, there's certain um, people with diabetes who are high risk, right? Um, chronic kidney disease, EGFR under 60. You are going to probably have most of those people on a stat. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. And so when you're talking about uh, the high risk on the Framingham, it's the 20%, 10% uh, category. So over 20% is the high risk. 10 to 20% is where you're talking about where you kind of have to have a discussion with the patient um, have a, you know, risk benefit kind of analysis. Cause there is some side effects to being on a statin as well. And then less than 10%, they don't need to be on a statin. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. Yeah. So their chance of being on a statin, they're, they're probably not going to benefit, especially if their LDL is under five, right? You know what I mean? Now the CCS characterizes the low risk people. It says under five and above five. So it'll say in the greater than five, if they haven't responded to lifestyle modification, and we're really going to talk about that and stuff. So even though we mentioned statins, like we're not saying that you don't tell you know, people to stop smoking, right? Like, no, you're still going to do all your lifestyle modifications. That's going to be very, very integral and stuff. But if your LDL, especially if it's below five, your chance of getting a, a is very, very low. Like your, your, your chance, you're probably not going to need a statin and your benefit of statin therapy is extremely low, right? Um, um, the, the CCS will talk about if you're, if you're above five and you're low and you're, um, you're otherwise low risk and your LDL is above five and it's not responding to behavioral modification or lifestyle modification to consider statins. Now I kind of put consider statins in that group in extreme air quotes. Does that make sense? Because the benefit even to that group is low. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing to mention there, which you, you kind of intimated, but I just want to hammer home, not every patient is going to need a Framingham risk score. If you have a cardiovascular disease risk equivalent, quote unquote, yeah, you don't need a Framingham because you're automatically in the high risk group. So like you said, any, any evidence of coronary uh, heart disease at all, so MI, angina, failure, um, any previous stroke or cerebrovascular disease, the peripheral arterial disease, uh, aortic atherosclerosis, like any actual evidence, they're automatically high risk. Perfect, perfect. So if I tell you a trick question for examination, hi, you have a STEMI, what is their, you know, friendly hand score? And you're like, well, I don't know what their blood pressure is. Yeah, exactly. You can say it's greater 20%, right? Perfect, perfect. We can get a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stuff. So high risk people, again, they're going to, everybody's going to get health behavior. Everybody's going to get lifestyle modification, right? So we're going to talk about that. So I don't want to diminish the value of that. Everybody's going to get lifestyle modification. For your high-risk people, so that they have atherosclerotic manifestations, they have significant renal disease, they have high-risk diabetes, their Framingham risk is about 20%. Um, they have a triple A. They're going to be on statin therapy as well. Low-risk people, the vast majority of low-risk people are not going to be on statin therapy. The CCF talks about um, if they're low-risk and their LDL is greater than 5 to consider it. Does that make sense? But again, the absolute benefit to even that group is very small, right? So you can do that what you will. Absolutely. Perfect. Let's go and talk about the intermediate risk people. And as you well define, those are the people with between 10 and 20%. So they have a chance of between 10 and 20% in the next 10 years of having an atherosclerotic manifestation. That's where it gets tough and you have to talk about, um, I mean, we know the obvious side effects of the, of the statins, the kind of myalgia, muscle ache, that sort of thing. Um, but then also talking about the benefit of them, I think that class is difficult 
because I'm always weary of pharmaceutical studies in the first place, and none of the statins have comparative studies, comparative effectiveness yeah. studies between the agents, so you don't even know what agent to pick. But also, Perfect. the bigger issue with them is that none of them looked at actual outcomes. All the studies are on surrogate outcomes, so they looked at lowering your, your LDL, essentially. Yeah. They didn't... Exactly. None of the coming-to-market studies had anything to do with actual heart disease or anything like that. And there's been studies since that, that, you know, meta-analyses and stuff like that. We need a trial um, funded by government, obviously, because nobody else is going to fund it, where they actually do a randomized trial on statins in that intermediate risk group. Exactly, exactly. No, no, that's a very, very, um, that's a very, very um, um, good point. You know, and this is where it is. Like we say high risk people, yeah, it's a no brainer. They're prob- they're most likely going to benefit. Low risk people, the vast majority are not. It's the intervenient risk people. What do we do, right? Because we don't have very, very good studies, um, um, exactly as you mentioned, and we're kind of left in the dark. Um, um, even though guidelines, and we'll talk about what the guidelines say, but, you know, from a personal standpoint, sometimes they're not based on the best evidence. Does that make sense? Like they're trying to, they're trying to take things and trying to come up with a consensus for what can be an approach, right? Exactly. And, and some people can criticize that consensus. And I think that's what we want to do as doctors is criticize, well, where are you getting this recommendation from? You know what I mean? Unfortunately, for exam purposes, oftentimes they want to see a strict regurgitation that you know what the current consensus is. You know what I mean? But for your own practice and for your own sanity, you always want to be questioning things. Well, why are we doing this? And I think you mentioned some very good questions. There's probably a subset of people who are intermediate risk that are going to benefit from statins. I don't think we have a clear notion of exactly what that subset is, right? Or how to fine tune that subset um, um, very, uh, very, very well. Yeah. And for listeners, if, if you want to read up on kind of this intermediate group or the best evidence we have on statins uh, for primary prevention, there's a 2013 Cochrane Review called statins yeah. for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease it's actually quite excellent it is it is and that's an excellent Cochrane view and it kind of it talks about a lot of the controversies and uh, what i can say that the the, the kind of answer is that we're not sure right we don't know exactly how to risk stratify and that's my personal opinion and that's based on what the evidence says we'll talk about what guidelines say but my personal like opinion and 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 when you actually scrutinize the evidence as well we don't have good evidence for teasing out who exactly is high risk in this intermediate group so even though the ccs and we'll talk about that you know it used it sort of an ldl strategy and it stratifies your intermediate risk group into ldl greater than 3.5 or ldl under 3.5 and said well the ldl greater than 3.5 maybe they're going to have more of a benefit with statin therapy does that make sense and then yeah. the ldl under 3.5 you'll use you'll, you'll maybe probably not and you know you have uh you have uh, um, alternate targets and stuff that you can use and that's where your apoB and your non-htlc will come in yeah. you know keep in mind even that's a little bit wishy washing yep absolutely perfect so what do we know and take home messages we're not sure we're not sure really how to pick out the people in the intermediate risk that are going to benefit from ldl therapy right um what do the guidelines say the ccs says well you know we're going to take an ldl based approach so it looks at if the ldl is high and it defines high in this intermediate group as 3.5 and you can even criticize that number quite significantly as probably likely being benefit from statin therapy and behavioral modification an ldl group of under 3.5 um um um, um probably is not going to benefit from uh, from statin therapy and stuff. Where it starts to get into these non-HDL cholesterols and these APOB are looking at some of these. These are targets that are used in this intermediate risk, right? So they really have no no purpose in the high risk or in the low risk individual. Yeah, absolutely. And Perfect. Then, and then if you are starting a statin with these people too, you have to. The other thing you have to consider too is 
what your target statin dose is. So there's moderate intensity and high intensity statins. Yeah. And in general, to like just summarize it in my head, the intermediate group, if you're going to put them on one, aim for the moderate intensity because they're probably not going to get as much benefit from high and they're just going to get more side effects. And then those at high risk, you got to hit the high intensity uh, statins as much as you can because that's the whole point of having them on the, in the first place. There you go. There you go. I think that's a good point to mention. Like if you are going to take somebody at intermediate risk and which are, whichever guideline you're going to follow, um, um, that's a good take home message. I, like if you are going to start them on a statin at intermediate risk, they're probably not going to benefit from high dose statinization. Right? They're probably going to benefit from more moderate dose, moderate dose or lower doses or so. Perfect. Remember, if you're treating somebody, the targets we use in Canada is all same under two, and that can cause now for they'll say under two or greater than a fifty percent increase in the LDL. Does that make sense? You'll want the under two or greater than the fifty percent um 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 a decrease in your LDL. So irrespective of when you're going to initiate therapy, your target is going to be the same. And I find a lot of people don't get that. And I didn't get that for a very long time, right? It's more once you make a decision to treat, your target is the same. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's a good point to hammer home. If they're already on lipid lowering therapy, if they're on a statin, you can't use that whatever measurement you have right there that you just did their lipids as their target or 50% of that. It's 50% of what they started with before therapy. Exactly, exactly. It's 50%, exactly. And then look, you know, if you have someone that's low risk, remember we said that low risk people really don't benefit from statins, but let's say you're adhering to the guideline and their LDL comes back at nine and you're like, I really want to get this burden off the statin. Like you're not going to drive them down to two, right? Yeah. A 50% reduction would be fine in that. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect, perfect. And again, too, in the guideline we'll talk about the um, uh, um, not uh, ApoB and non HDLC, and keep in mind these are secondary targets, and these really only come into play in intermediate people, right? Um, um, that there's targets for ApoB, it'll talk about under 0.8, and targets for non HDLC is under 2.6. So if you decide to use those as an alternate target, but folks, they're not the primary target. That's why no one measures in ApoB. Does that make sense? Because for most people, it's still LDL. Yeah, exactly. And we're, I mean, I, I, I like in the Canadian context, we're just generally more conservative than the U.S. and I think that served us well. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect. So I think we talked about that's awesome. And let, is lifestyle stuff too important, right? Is it all just statinization, like statins or busts? It's lifestyle for all the chronic diseases. It's easy marks on the Excellent. exam. Perfect. Lifestyle and multidisciplinary teams. So remember, you know, diet, exercise. Exercise is really, really important. You know, they, they've kind of, they're starting to question some of the, the, the lipid, um, um, specific dietary issues that we use around cholesterol and whether or not they actually benefit, you know what yeah. I mean, and stuff, um, uh, um, whether or not they actually benefit, you know, is, is it reasonable for people to see a dietitian? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Because, you know, we know that probably surviving on a diet of potato chips and Twix bars probably is not going to help anything, <laughs> yeah. including dyslipidemia, right? Um, um, so that can be a recommendation as well, too, as part of your multidisciplinary team, you know, quitting smoking, good idea. Um, 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 alcohol to low risk guidelines, you know what I mean? And stuff, those things, exercise, you know what I mean? It's going to be, is going to be good. So it, you, we want to remember, we want to remember that we, we want to remember not to, not to forget any of those things and stuff because those things have benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Excellent. What are we talking about? Talking about classes. Oh, and guess what? We're, there's a new class of medication that just came out this year, Dr. Bouchard. <laughs> no, statins only. Statins only. Really? Statins only. 
Are you sure about that? Yeah. Mike Allen even even says in his review article, and I love that, there's no evidence for anything other than statins so far. Perfect. Yeah. No evidence for anything other than statins. I love it. Yeah. Maybe as but an what adjunct. Classes you can... of medications that are there. Yeah. There are other medications that we can, can, we can, we can use. Now, I agree that there's no evidence for using them. Uh, well, the fibrates is one. Good. Probably do nothing. Probably fairly good at lowering your triglycerides if you have triglyceridemia that's so bad you're getting pancreatitis. Yeah. But as far as cardiovascular risk factors, no evidence that really it does really much in terms of lowering outcomes and stuff yeah. significantly. Exactly. Boom. Give me another class. Uh, niacin, which everybody loves to hate. Everybody loves to hate niacin. Niacin is like... The Rodney, you know, it gets no respect. Exactly. And it probably shouldn't because it doesn't affect secondary outcomes either. And, they get, right? and you get you know? crazy side effects. You get crazy side effects from it, right? You get flushing yeah. and all this sort of other stuff that happens and stuff. Yeah. It was touted as this HDL raising drug, but the problem is that it didn't affect outcomes. That was the issue. It raised HDL, but it was not affecting secondary outcomes all that well, right? Perfect. What about another class of medication? Uh, probably the second most common one we use out here is, uh, I never pronounced the generic, ezetimab? Ezetimab? Yeah, ezetimide or whatever. Ezetol. Yeah. These absorption, again, medications that do not have evidence for reducing outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, so, you know, there were a lot of studies looking at that. If you add these to statins, you know, yeah, you might lower your LDL, but does that help you get better outcomes? Not sure. Probably not, Right. Well, cholesterol absorption inhibitors, right? These are just other classes, just in case like people are intolerant, truly intolerant, right? You need to know what other agents you can use. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, not to, and nothing's black and white in medicine. I think it's probably reasonable if they're completely intolerant to statins to try one of these, but there really yeah. is no good data on using them. Exactly. There's no good data. And like, there's no good data to say that these things reduce those, those atherosclerotic manifestations. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Right? And if you're treating to target, maximize your statin therapy before you add any of these. Perfect. Perfect. So it's kind of this kind of statins are bust. Um, statins are bust and stuff. What about another class of medication? Again, I hardly ever use this anymore. The resins? Oh my God. I, I, yeah. Great for giving people diarrhea, you know. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used a cholesterol binding resin and stuff, you know, cholecystyramine. Sometimes the GI people will use it when people get diarrhea because of bile, you know, their bile acids, you know, they have short gut syndrome or something like that and they don't absorb all their bile acids. I see them more use it than, than, uh, than the cardiologist. But I think you mentioned a very good point that only the drugs that we have the most, the best evidence for actually reducing atherosclerotic manifestations by far are the stats. Is there a new class of medication now? Yeah, well, well, just like uh, every other disease like, that seems to be happening, we get monoclonal antibodies. Oh my God! The engineer high five, Booyaka! Yeah. Dr. Bouchard. <laughs> I, I think pretty soon we're going to have monoclonal antibodies for almost everything. Have, monoclonal antibodies are going to treat everything one day. What do they call these PCSK9 inhibitors? I yeah. think there was just one that was just licensed in Canada. Oh, is there? I didn't even know they were licensed in Canada. I just knew about them. It in the was States. just licensed, like like just before Christmas and stuff like that. E Evolocumab. Ev Look at Evolocumab. <laughs> I was in Accept. That's how you get them all. Accept or a Mab, right? What's it called? Oh, I gave the person some Evolocumab. Yeah. What was that again? <laughs> oh no, 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 Evolocumab. You know, it was really good, right? <laughs> How often do you get that? Once a week. <laughs> Just be very vague, right? What did you give them? I gave them some uh, tocrisumab. 
I think it's important. I think it's like, and again, we're not gonna have we, we're gonna have no outcome data in terms of long term outcomes because these medications just came out, but they offer us another. Uh, they're based on this receptor that affects uptake of cholesterol, and they're a monoclonal antibody, right? So they will be used for people, for example, with certain types of hereditary bad hyper um 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 cholesterol um um high cholesterol conditions. Um, you're gonna start to see more of this stuff floating around. You know, maybe in a few years. These things might make, uh, might, uh, might, might start coming into more general practice, but they are licensed. These new, new class of medications just licensed as of like six months ago. These PC, what do they call PCSK9 inhibitors? Am I getting it right? Yeah, I think you are. Nice work. Holy moat. Wow, you're on the ball, Mike. On the ball for the, wow, I'm an expert at medications I will never use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, just to mention them, they are another class of medication that we do have in our disposal. But to kind of mention the Dr. Brady Bouchard approach, which is very similar to the Dr. Mike Allen approach, and he's a super cool guy, and so is Dr. Bouchard. Really, it's statins or bust, because that's where we have the evidence, folks, for affecting and for reducing badness. All the other stuff doesn't have nearly the type of evidence. So if you're treating somebody with an agent other than a statin based on lowering their LDL, you might get better LDL results, but you're not necessarily, we can't say in all cases that you're actually going to affect cardiovascular outcomes that much. Yep. Folks. What a money-making machine. I just looked it up because all these antibodies are expensive, eh? $7,300 a year in Canada. That's pretty expensive. That's pretty expensive. I, I, I you know what? I, I, I've just been, you know, I've been following the research for them for the last couple of years, and I know that they were trying to get these things pushed through and stuff, and, and there's going to be a lot of trials on these things, you know, and, and of course, I've never used it, nor I've had any patients on them, yeah. um, and I'm sure in some bigger centers and stuff, they're, they're, they're probably jamming away at trying to, trying to get people as, as this is an, if this is an option for, you know, people with cardiovascular disease who take, hate taking medications, because I, I hear these things, you only have to take, the dosing frequency is a lot less, you know what I mean, and stuff, so it's... Yeah, and they're, they're all of them for all as far as I know, all of them are subcutaneous kind of once, or a, subcutaneous. Once, once a week, give or take. Exactly. You know, and, and then they're going to want to develop, you know, the once a year drug, you know what I mean? And the once every six months, yeah. you know, monoclonal antibody. The monoclonal antibodies are taking, are, 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 are taking over the world. They totally are. You can hit any there target you, you want now of any receptor in the body. If you, if there you, you go. Money behind it. Soon, wouldn't it be neat if they had like an ACE inhibitor monoclonal antibody? Like, Hi, I'm just coming my once a year Remipro. Yeah, you know exactly. Yeah. Hope I don't get sick and have hypotension. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm really <laughs> Exactly. And that's what I always fear is that when you remember when you're dealing with these long acting, uber long acting medications, that's great if you don't get sick. But like if something happens or you have a bad side effect, these things are going to persist for a ridiculously long time. Yeah, right? Exactly. So that's the, that's always the concern with these, uh, with these sort of agents or so. What else can we can talk about in here? Uh, Mike in his review article mentions primary prevention of cardiovascular disease with ASA as well. And so they're discouraging that for primary prevention, which is good. because Definitely, definitely agree with that. We just don't have the evidence in the primary care population. And then there was a good study about four years ago that looked at that, right? Even with a lot of diabetics. Remember, like, remember back in the, remember back when I was a resident and, you know, sex was dirty and the air was clean. You know what I mean? Someone was like, well, let's just give everybody with diabetes for S's and G's, just start, start them on ASA because it makes sense, right? And the answer is not necessarily. Does that make sense? So even there's a large percentage of diabetic that probably don't need that. And we know from good primary prevention that there was just not that benefit. Does that make sense on your low risk people? In fact, it was a concern too because you're probably going to see more GI bleeds, right? 
Um, yeah, other stuff in this minimalist article. We suggest that testing for baseline CK and ALT in healthy individuals before starting statin therapy is generally unnecessary, which is all awesome. I agree with that wholeheartedly. We should not be doing because, again, A, the rates of true clinically significant rhabdomyolysis is really, really low. Does that make sense with modern statins that we do choose them to use them? And the chance of this in an otherwise healthy person is even lower. Yeah. And I would suggest with no evidence to back it up that they would be symptomatic as well. Perfect. That's the kind of thing that you want to be, uh, that you want to be looking at. And keep in mind, too, um, you know, they, they address this. I, I like the CCS has this nice little app and I... I use it. Um, I, I, I use it a lot because they actually have this really, really good, um, section on statins kind of symptoms, you know, um, whether it's a myositis or a myalgia and when to stop the statin. Does that make sense to say someone's CK is too high? So I, I encourage everybody to take a read of that or so. Maybe we can put it in the show notes and stuff. It's one of these things. It kind of differentiates the term between statin induced myalgias or statin induced myositis and at what CK cutoff, like, cause there's like your CK's high and then there's like your CK's high, right? You know, is your CK like a couple times the upper limit of normal versus it is like 20 times the upper limit of normal? Does yeah. that make sense? No, that's a good point. So, and I've been using that app. I totally forgot that it had the lipid uh, guidelines and stuff in there because I've been using it for atrial fibrillation and think it's great. Yeah, it's a good. Thing perfect, perfect. And I actually, I actually use it a fair bit for um for. I find it's actually it, it actually gives a fairly good comprehensive uh, assessment of sort of those satin induced myalgias and stuff. And it has a little app that you can go through and plug in your patient characteristics and stuff, and it works every three out for you. I think the big take home message with that uh, with these satin symptoms is that there's myalgias and there's myositis, right? Yeah. And myositis is usually come with a clinically significant elevation in your in your um CK. Does that make sense? So whereas a myalgias there aren't so you can have statin induced myalgias right and that may be an indication for stopping the statin or reducing the dose but it, you know you can try again with a different statin a few weeks later does that make sense yeah no, like that's the type of that's the type of thing that you want to that you want to consider the guideline will have different uh will have different cutoffs that it uses specifically for for um when you want to stop it versus when you want to give the person a break and, and restart it or so yeah no i think that's a brilliant point good call perfect i think we covered it eh I think we're, I think we, I think we rocked the dyslipidemia world. I think you integrated it effectively. Beautiful. You know, like, well, we did diabetes, we did dyslipidemia. You know, our next one, like, has to be hypertension. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're challenging the big stuff. And these things are all kind of related, right? Like, atherosclerosis, right? Like, what are manifestations of atherosclerosis? So maybe we can challenge the hypertension world next time. Sounds lovely, Mike. You have a great day. Thanks Perfect. for the chat. Alrighty. Always a pleasure. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you.